great to be here with you again today. I'm thankful for the opportunity to continue pursuing very, very important ideas with you. Uh, before we get going today, this morning, Shivraj Mahindra texted me or messaged me, and uh, as uh, many of you know, we have a relationship with him here at this church. We've been trying to get him back to the States, and he just asked that we as a church would pray for them. Nothing bad that he said was going on, but I just told him we would, and I'd like for us to pause as we start today and, uh, and pray for them. He's asked uh, for a few things in, in particular, and so would you join me please and just, just pray for Shivraj and Anita and, and their work in India. Our dear Father and our God, creator of the world, ruler over all, the one who's coming to save all nations, tribes, and peoples, we thank you for your servants, Shivraj and Danita, and we thank you that we have a privilege to know them, great people of God like they are, and uh, to, to join with them in uh, your, your work in the kingdom. And so we pray as, once again, their paperwork is is in process. Thank you that that's happening, and uh, we pray that it will uh, work out this time, that the paperwork will move quickly, and they'll be able to return to the States and do your work here uh, with us. Um, we pray for peace in Manipur, India, and peace around Shivraj and Anita and the rest of the country. Lord, we pray that the persecution of Christians will cease. We pray your protection over your people. You pray, we pray that your people will rise up as powerful witnesses to your reality in the midst of persecution. And uh, we pray for Shivraj and Anita's ministry among them. Uh, Lord, let them walk with apost apostolic power uh, in the face of difficulties and dangers and uh, shake the earth around them like you shook the, the earth around your early disciples and let them see mighty things done for the glory of your great and holy name. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So we've been talking about, we started a couple of weeks ago talking about supernatural life and how to enter into a life that's really beyond what is natural, what's humanly possible when we're on our own. And we, we emphasize that Scripture does call us to something more than just a regular, ordinary human life. In fact, I quoted from Christian psychologist David Benner, who, who noted that what's often being presented in the field of psychology is more like a little bit of help or, or some aids to, to strengthen people in growth, but not real transformation. And he's just noting as a psychologist what Christianity calls people to. If you take the scripture seriously, it calls you to something way beyond that. And we looked at some scriptures that uh, held that out for us as a vision. We want to talk about that uh, continuing on today just as a reality. What are, we to, what are we to do with that idea that Christianity calls us to something that's far more than what many Christians have managed to get a hold of? And even far more than what uh, many would say is possible today, both uh, in the, probably the field of secular psychology and Christian psychology. What is it that, that keeps us from seeing the, the beauty and reality of the Christian faith? And, and is there really a possibility of entering into that life from above? I told you, it may have been a year ago, I don't remember. I'm going to tell you again. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting to pay attention to advertisements and to see what they try to convince you of with their words. And I, I don't know if you remember or not, but 
when I was in Kentucky and I was up there again not too long ago, we always stay with our friend Sarah Modlin, and uh, she has this shampoo in her shower. And you know, you always get these great promises from things, but I don't know I've ever seen one that promises this much because the, the very simple title on it is Resurrection. <laughs> I mean, if it could actually do that, <laughs> somebody would be making a lot of money on that shampoo, right? But the, the truth is, we read resurrection on the shampoo, and we filter that through what we know about marketing strategies today, and we think it might help a little bit. <laughs> Maybe it could do some good, at least for some people. And I'm afraid that's the way we read the promises of the Bible. And they're all over the place. And we read them like they're a clever marketing strategy, meant to say, if you got some of this, you might could do a little bit better. You remember that old movie? I saw it one time years ago. It's called As Good As It Gets. I don't remember much about it. I just remember at one point in the, in the movie, Jack Nicholson says, uh, asks the question, what if this is just as good as it gets? <laughs> and I, I think there are many Christians who walk around, and, and, and they, whether they'll say it verbally or not, what they're really thinking inside is, what if this is just as good as it gets? And it's not that good. And that may be true, but it's sure not biblical. Because the Bible says things are different and things can be different for people in Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't act like there won't be difficulties and challenges and all kinds of things to work through. and that There won't be lifelong growth while we're in this world. But there is something real that the scriptures hold out for us to enter into. That's what we're going to talk about today. People have not entered it partially because they've, held, they, they, they've heard a false minimalist gospel. It really doesn't even offer it. It just offers you to get some forgiveness and, and be okay until you get to the next world. Partially, they've heard, some people have heard that gospel. They've wanted it. They've looked for it. But they haven't been given instruction about how to enter it more deeply. And so they haven't found it. And so these are words today. I, I really want to be helpful to you. And I, I hope that... Uh, you won't think of all the sermons that we give here as just ways to kind of put on a good show for a little while, or a bad show, <laughs> whatever it is, but uh, th that you will receive them as means to help, as a way to enter knowledge that is for life. And today I'd like to, to reflect deeply on some things with you. I'm going to read a good bit to you, both from the Bible and from some other areas. This is a little bit different than I normally do. I'm going to ask for your patience with that, but I'm trying to work out some important ideas, and hopefully I can do it carefully. So if we're going to enter into life, we talked about this last time, we've got to know some things. The Scriptures hold out knowledge that is central to us entering into life. And the first thing we talked about, and I want to just briefly review here. The first thing we talked about is knowing the great love of God. And we talked about Ephesians chapter 4. Again, it's a passage we read over as if it's a commercial on TV. But if you stop taking it that way and you say, no, this is knowledge that's being given to us, it is life-changing. Because Paul is praying that the people of God will know what he knows. And he knows that the love of God is so great, we can't even fathom it. And I pray that you'll come to understand how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. And it's in that knowledge of his love, rooted and grounded, he says. That's the foundation that you build on. In that knowledge, 
then you can be filled with the life of God. That, that's where we start at. That's what we build up on. That's where our roots grow down into. And apart from it, we really can't grow like we're meant to grow. And I want to say to you, we, we talk about obedience and transformation and spiritual life. This is about that. This is not just about giving you comfort. Although it's comforting, isn't it? But this is about life from God. And so many times we go about it the wrong way. I closed last time by telling you about a conversation I had at the end of a sermon with a relative of mine years ago who had, who had encouraged me not to leave the fear out when I preach. And as I said last time, two weeks ago, there is a message of fear, and it has its appropriate place, and we could talk at length about uh, working that out in Scripture. But I do not think fear is meant to be the primary thing that Christians are living on. In fact, I am convinced it will not take us where we want to go. The irony is that fear demands of us what only love can give us. Fear says, obey God or else. And yet fear cannot take us to that place, those heights of obedience. It's when we're grounded in love that we find ourselves suddenly soaring up there and able to live in that world of obedience. And it's just the nature, it's the nature of fear to work that way. Fear does not take us to the place deep inside us to transform our desires. It may stop certain behaviors. You know, tell a child, you cannot have that cookie, no matter how good it looks, or else. And that may work, because the child may know the consequences are too severe. But you know what that child will do every day? Look at that cookie. Wish it could have that cookie. Wonder if maybe it's safe to try it and get that cookie. Because the desire remains in place. It's just being withheld by fear. It's waiting to break out at any time. Fear doesn't transform the desire. Fear just restrains the desire. It imprisons the desire to the extent that it is able. Tell an adult, you cannot engage in that relationship with someone who's not your spouse. Or else. And the adult will say, Man, sure wish I could. When will I have the opportunity? Maybe I'll have the opportunity to do that. Maybe there'll be a time when the consequences aren't so severe. And, and, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. You know, the, the fear. But let an adult enter into the life of love. The love of God it grounds us in love for others, love for our family, love for our spouse, love for our children. And suddenly, that other relationship doesn't look all that appealing anymore. Suddenly, the desires are changing. And this is taking us to a place of genuine obedience. A place where we can start talking about real spiritual life happening. I uh, need to use fear especially with my younger children, my youngest now, he needs to know. You know, he needs to be able to hear my voice. If he's going to run out in the street, 
He needs to know that my strong voice should scare him and stop him for his protection. Or even if he's going to spill my drink, he needs to know that too. Maybe not, but I can use fear a little bit. But you know what, what really uh, it blesses me and I think blesses him is my son will climb up on my lap and sometimes he'll squeeze me and he'll rub his face into my face. And I want to say that in terms of his whole life, he's going to be a much better son because of that than, be, than he will be because he knows what it's like for me to yell and say, Don't! Stop! He's going to live much better in relationship to me. He's going to do more of what I want him to do because of that relationship. This is what we're after when we talk about walking with Christ, being grounded in the great, great love of God. Do you understand when we read that passage, God loves you more than your grandmother loves you. More than your father or your mother loves you. Whatever the good relationship you have in your life is of love. God's love is vastly beyond that. He actually put the love into the person who loves you. And if that's true, it has to have practical implications for us. That means something. I, mean, I, I just think if we internalize it psychologically inherently, it will start to change us. But we need God's help to internalize that. We need him to come to us by the Holy Spirit and let that knowledge resonate with our hearts and then to live out from there. So the first thing, when we talk about transformation, we want to be rooted and grounded in love. We want to know the love of God, transformed by being rooted in his love. Today we're talking about transformed by being united with transformation by union with Christ, being united with Christ. So the, so the second step, and not really steps, this is just the way I'm ordering it as I'm talking. The second thing I'll say to you about transformation Number one, we need to be grounded in the love of God. Number two, we need to know that we are united with Christ. We need to embrace our relationship with Christ. And I do not mean that in the trite, superficial way you sometimes hear it as it's passed around in evangelical circles. Oh, I've got a relationship with Jesus. He's like, you know, my buddy doll. I don't know. That's like 1980s commercials. You may not know that. My buddy. You know that? Yeah. Feel it's with me. Yeah. Wherever I go, he's going to go. You know some people treat Jesus like the My Buddy doll. It's just like a, a superficial thing, and they talk about it in such a trite way. That's not what I mean. When we talk about the Scriptures and what they say about union with Christ, and virtually every great theologian in history has focused on this idea of participation in Christ, something we have made into a metaphor that does not have any real teeth to it, but it's been at the center of Christian theology, at the center of the New Testament, is that we're really in some way spiritually, mystically united with Christ. Something happens to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and our life gets merged with his life. And we live from that going forward. We're talking about a profound spiritual identification, a merging of life, a sharing of life that happens at a spiritual level and also is consciously nurtured over time. And I want to just read some scriptures to you to show you this. And I want to ask you if you've been dismissing these scriptures to try this morning not to dismiss them. But just think about what would you believe if you were to believe the scriptures and take on what they say. And I'm just going to read through several here, okay? We're not going to take a long time on these because I'm just trying to establish a broader biblical case for you. 
This is Ephesians 2. In the midst of a famous passage, Paul says, God being rich in mercy, the cause of the great love with which he loved us. This is what he did for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that's Christians. Somehow, Jesus' resurrection has unleashed resurrection life in our world. And people are being sucked into it. And God is raising people up from their deadness in sin. And seating them with him. Paul's talking about himself here. But I think it's paradigmatic for all of us. For through the law, Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's a total change of life, but it's not just that Paul changed his life. It's that somehow he began to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died. It's not about what you do now, but you do it because of something that has already happened. You have died, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He goes on to say, therefore, put to death the things that are earthly in you. And starts listing off simple kind of things. It's from this place of life, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that spiritual life unleashed in our world through the cross and resurrection, now embracing us. Now we put on, as Paul elsewhere says, the new person. We're dressed in this new person and we live from that source. This is what the New Testament teaches over and over and over again. And when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he is not just saying, yeah, I've learned to be a little bit better. I've learned some new techniques. I read some self-help books that I got at the bookstore. And I started to practice the power of positive thinking or whatever you, you may make of it. And, and, and now I've been crucified. I'll call that being crucified with Christ. He's talking about encountering the Lord. And the Lord has made him something else. And because the Lord made him something else, then he gets to live that out. So do we. Let me look at one more scripture here with you that we read today. We won't go back to the whole thing. Paul's been talking to the Romans about their freedom from sin, this great grace that's on them. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. Christ is pouring out his forgiveness and grace upon the people. And people say, then, well, shall we continue in sin? That's the first verse here. Should we just go on sinning? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Oh, so there's already been a death. Why in the world would you think about continuing sin? You've died to it. Do you not know 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Paul is faced with this challenge of explaining what to do, when people might say, well, we should continue in sin, uh, we, might, we might should just abuse this grace that's come to us and live in sin. He doesn't first go back and threaten them. He doesn't first say, hey, remember now, the law still applies to you and you've got to obey it. Remember, there are major consequences if you don't. He doesn't start there when he talks to them. He starts by reminding them of who they are and of what has happened to them. Something real happened to you. Through your faith and baptism, you have encountered the life of the risen Christ. Clothed with his death and his resurrection now. And because of that, you live forward from a new place. New life. The reality is, you see, we've got to come back to what we believe is real. The reality is, first of all, that we are really, really, really loved. That's the reality, first of all. And we are really, really, really given a new life because of Christ. It's real, even if it's not always automatic. And like other forms of not life, it needs to be nourished. And we'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Just because you plant a plant doesn't mean that then you just toss it in your closet and expect everything to go fine, right? You put it in the sunlight and you water it. And whatever else you do with plants, that's what you do. Right? You nourish that life. And that's how it grows. It's real for us, but some of us have not known that we can nourish it, and some of us have not known how to nourish it, and so it doesn't grow in us. This kind of thing that Paul's talking about, we don't... It's hard for us to even find good illustrations for it because it's... I mean, this is a one, a one kind of... This is a, a, a unique deal. This is the only kind of thing in the world like this. Maybe the closest thing we can get to it is we talk about a marriage relationship. Um, with uh, Callie and Brett being, being married now. Um, uh, it's uh, good to think about the implications of, of marriage when you can see the beauty of what's happening when, when people come together. There's a, there's a total change of life, right? And Paul actually uses this. We won't, we won't read it right now, but if you follow this through uh, to Romans 7, uh, he uses marriage as an illustration of what's happening when you're transferring over to your, your allegiance to Christ. And he's, he's talking about actually a marriage where one spouse dies. And because the spouse dies, then you're free to marry someone else. And he's saying now you're free from the law to be married to Christ. There's a total giving up. There's a change of life, a change of expectations, a change of thought patterns that happens in that kind of a relationship. But even that, talking about a marriage, is not enough because a marriage is not the, meant to be the center thing that Jesus is in our lives. The all-absorbing thing in our life is meant to be God. Meant to be the power of Christ, the love of Christ that we encounter. 
So being united to Christ means that we are attached to Jesus. Uh, one scholar says it, something like this. We're attached to Jesus in a way that we draw our lives from him. We draw our nourishment from him. The context of our life is somehow Christ. I would argue both consciously and in ways we're not conscious of because of the spiritual union. Martin Luther said that faith takes hold of Christ and encloses him like a ring encloses a jewel. It's like we're wrapped around Christ and now we are his and he is ours. And we are united to him in the mystery of the resurrection of Jesus. Then you get, I'm going to skip forward in Romans chapter 6 here, but Paul tells them then, you must consider yourselves. Now this is the way you think about yourself. And he's not telling them to believe something that's false. That's not, he said, that's the way you might be tempted to hear it. Like, okay, I was trying to think of that. I'm going to try to think of myself that way, you know. And it'll be like a pep rally, like when I used to be at school playing football, and they'd be out there saying, we're number one, you know, the, the cheerleaders. We're number one! It's always ironic when you know you're about to play a team that's going to destroy you. <laughs> and you may hear that in the same way. If you, he's telling them to believe what is real and true. And so you think this way because it is true. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Knowing that is one of our foundations then for living that way. Knowing that he has put us on the cross with Jesus. He has given us a nature that can live free from sin. We are not to be dominated by sin. We are not to be completely and utterly defeated and dragged around by sin all the time because God has done something. God has worked in our lives. And now new possibilities are available to us. And so that's what he goes on to say here in verse 12 then. You, you know, you understand, you decide it's true because it is true that God has done something giving us new possibilities. And then he says, so don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin be in charge of you. You don't have to do that anymore. Stop letting sin boss you around. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But here's what we do then. I want you to ask yourself if you've ever done this. Present yourselves to God. As those who have been brought from death to life. And your individual bodily members, you just present those to God and say, to God and say, I would like for these now to be instruments for you to work your beautiful purposes in the world. Have you ever done that? And if not, it'd be worth taking some quiet time with the Lord. It doesn't matter how old you are. Some of us may need to do it again if we've done it before. And just say, Lord, you know, um, I've drifted from this. Or maybe you know, I've, I've never realized I should do this. But um, now in light of what I see you're calling me to, I want to just present myself to you.
Because you brought me from death to life, and that's true. So here I am, lying here on this floor. Here's my hands. Here's my eyes. Here's my tongue. And I'm going to offer those to you. Here's my brain. And I, I want to present myself to you because you brought me from death to life. Would you use me now? Use my instruments as your instruments for your purposes in the world. I'm pausing here. I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I'm just going to stop. I was thinking about saying a lot more today, but I'm going to save it. I'm going to say it to you another time. I think this is enough for us today. I want to just invite you to believe that it's real, that life from above is real, that love from God beyond what we understand is real, and that we can live further and further into it. And we do it by knowledge by knowledge of his love, by knowledge that we are really united with him. And we learn to trust him and to lean further back into that. I want to urge you to attach yourself closer and closer to Jesus. And here, here's what I, I will say that was in my notes, uh, but I'm skipping all the rest of this. Um, I want to urge you, when we talk about this, this life with Jesus, it has to be one that's lived in fellowship with him. And I want to urge you to find time for solitude, to be with the Lord. We talk about nourishing life. And some of you last semester, I haven't done a survey to see who actually did it, but when we were doing the anger studies, I know some of you did this and you found it very, very helpful to be alone with God and to meet with God. Because if we're saying that God is real and that he comes to us real, that Christ, his life is ours, and that life is really meant to be lived in trust and fellowship with him, well, that, that's great. But if we just sit around talking about it, we're like, we're like people who know that a plant needs sunlight and water, but we just throw it in the closet still. Take yourself out of the closet. Set aside a substantial portion of time to be alone with God and to be nourished in fellowship with him. And just see what happens. Maybe do it. Maybe take a special occasion to offer yourself to God as one who's alive from the dead. Praise team, would you guys please come on up? Drew told me that we're about to sing about uh, asking the Lord to make us a servant. And I love this song. It's one of the things that can happen to us with this life from above. Is that the Lord uh, comes and gives us his life as a servant. And... Uh, I urge you to embrace these words as part of the new life that God has given us. Let me pray for us now. Lord, we do ask you to come and make us all that you want to make us. We want every bit of the great, great life uh, that comes from above, the new birth. Lord, forgive us of being negligent and dismissive of the great things you have done for us. And would you awaken within us now a fire to live in your great and holy presence. Make us servants. Make us humble. Make us full of love. Let us see you in all your beauty and glory and love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. Teach us your ways, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.